Welcome to the Thomas Industry Podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. I am Kathy Ma. Today, I'm joined by Simone Farid, the CEO of Formic Technologies, a company unlocking robotic automation for small and mid-sized manufacturers. As leaders in industry continue to automate, Farid explains why automation is a necessity, not a luxury. In this episode, you will learn about the unknown benefits of automation and its various stages. Let's get into the episode. Saman, can you share with us a little bit about why you created Formic and what sets your business apart from your competitors? Yeah, um, so maybe just uh, uh, my background was in the world of automation and I was a, a roboticist and engineer for many years. Uh, and then uh, I were, moved into the world of technology uh, where I built uh, and sold two different um, technology companies. Uh, and then I spent about 10 years as a, as a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley investing in startups and uh, the next generation of uh, robotics. And there's a lot of new advancements in AI and machine learning that have pushed forward the state of robotics. But uh, every time I would go and visit uh, a factory or a construction site or a farm, uh, you know, it's hard to, to, to miss that there's basically no robots deployed in any of those environments or very, very few. Uh, and especially in the manufacturing world, 90% plus of factories have zero robots deployed. Uh, and, and so I really re- wanted to solve this adoption problem uh, because I felt like a lot of the technology issues had been solved in the last you know, five, 10 years. But um, in order for manufacturers to benefit from automation, there was a lot of other things that were missing. And so we started forming with the idea that uh, if we make it easy enough and risk-free enough for manufacturers, that we would see uh, a massive wave of adoption. And uh, we're still quite young as a business. We're only about two years old, uh, but we're really, really proud to see that uh, adoption really has started to take off. Um, about 75% of the, the customers that we serve, uh, we're the first time that they've ever used automation. Uh, and that's something that we're really proud of because it means that uh, we truly are making something that was previously inaccessible suddenly accessible to uh, most factories. So uh, what sets us apart from the rest of the market uh, is that we are not a vendor of equipment. Uh, We don't go and try to sell uh, factories on this piece of equipment versus that piece of equipment or these bells and whistles versus those bells and whistles. Uh, What we really are is a partner uh, and we, uh, we put up all of the capital necessary to put automation into a customer's factory. So We'll walk the floor with one of our customers. They'll choose the things that they need automated. Uh, and we will spend our own money to buy all of the equipment, to do all of the service and installation, to do all of the engineering. Uh, and we'll manage that system kind of from now until eternity. Uh, and what the end user gets, the factory gets, is they get a cheap and easy way to fill empty heads in their factory. Uh, and so uh, without coming out of pocket on any CapEx, without having to build a large in-house engineering team or maintenance team or service team, they can suddenly get the benefits of automation and just pay for it by the hour. Uh, And that's something that we found is really appealing for a lot of manufacturers, Uh, especially in today's environment where they're all short staffed, there's really high turnover. uh, There's uh, what we found is most factories in America uh, uh, only operate between two to 3000 hours per year out of a possible 8,600 production hours. Uh, and so that means every 
machine in that factory, every air conditioner, every forklift, every CNC machine, every square foot of space sits idle 75% of the time. Uh, and uh, as a result, these factories just uh, can't meet their production targets. Uh, they're usually operating on very thin margins. Uh, and when we come in and help them automate, they suddenly can increase their output, increase their uh, capacity, uh, and their cost base is generally the same. It's still all of the same old fixed costs that they had before. So uh, a slight increase in their top line can actually mean that they're doubling or tripling their bottom line. Uh, and so that's really, really impactful uh, for American manufacturing. And it's something we really care a lot about. And talking about American manufacturing at Thomas, uh, our website, thomasnet.com hosts a tremendous amount of information about suppliers, their capabilities and company sizes. One thing that you pointed out that is very interesting is that 83% of companies listed on Thomas in the US and Canada, they do have only 50 staff or below. So a lot of the manufacturers are really small and I do, I can see that overlap between the 90 something percent figures that you quoted that never automated anything in terms of like a big constraint for these companies, as you said, is they are small and they have to focus on the uptime that are powered by humans and you're unlocking all the unutilized uh, fixed cost resources to help them improve their margin. It's almost like this is a no-brainer business case for a lot of them. So yeah. in that regard, for some of our listeners, a lot of them are these suppliers. They may not be super familiar about where to begin. And a lot of times when we talk to our suppliers, um, there are a lot of parts that they, they, they feel like they can automate or get more help uh, from, from the labor pool. But sounds like your company can help them, such as assembly, logistics, um, even quality control. Can you talk us through uh, Formic and uh, your key use case for, for the manufacturers that you've been work, working with and how you've been helping them? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, the key word in automation is dull, dirty, and dangerous. So any, any tasks that are dull, dirty, or dangerous are the things that we love uh, taking on. Um, for, uh, depending on the industry, uh, there are different kinds of things that we do. Uh, for example, a lot of our customers are in the uh, aerospace and defense and metal fabrication world. Uh, so for those types of facilities, we generally put in robots that do uh, machine tending. So that's a robot that will load or unload a CNC machine or a, a press brake or a lathe or a milling machine. Um, so these are you know robots that kind of just do this task repetitively. Um, uh, and allows the factory to get a lot more utilization out of their existing equipment. Uh, we also have a lot of customers in the fast-moving consumer goods space. So they make things, uh, you know, everything from chocolate chip cookies to uh, protein powder to shredded lettuce um, to, you know, matcha powder, you know, all, all kinds of things like that. Um, and we provide robots that do a variety of tasks in that industry, but the most common ones are case packing, which is, you know, loading these kind of finished products into boxes or uh, palletizing, loading the completed boxes onto a pallet and stacking them uh, for shipment. Uh, those are things that uh, are very difficult for humans to do at high, high speed. And it, especially palletizing, you know, there's a lot of uh, health and safety concerns for workers because those are usually pretty heavy boxes and people can't do those tasks for long periods of time. And so uh, robots can come in and do that highly repetitively uh, and at scale. Uh, and then another category where we've recently found uh, a lot of um, 
meaningful uh, value is in plastic production, so plastic injection molding. Uh, and we have uh, robots that unload injection molding machines uh, and also do, like you said, inspection and things like that. Uh, and so uh, really uh, we, we offer kind of a wide variety of different kinds of automation. Uh, we have about a hundred different uh, integrator partners that we've certified ac across the US, uh, which allows us to uh, solve a lot of different kinds of automation problems. Um, and uh, as we you know, solve this for more and more facilities, uh, what we found is that we're able to do this uh, way more cost effectively because we're building these systems over and over again across lots and lots of different lines. Um, and uh, uh, it, that we bring that expertise and that value uh, to the end user by making it just super easy. We recently had uh, an example where, where we're, really, we're, we're really proud of it. Uh, we broke our own record uh, in terms of deployment. We had a, a palletizing system that uh, from the day the customer signed the contract to the day that the machine was up and running was only about 13 days, so less than two weeks. Uh, and on this first day that the robot arrived at the factory floor, it arrived, arrived on their dock. Four hours later, it was it was working and running boxes. And in the first day, it, it palletized, I think, 15,000 boxes. Uh, and again, you know, that's something we're really, really proud of because it, in a very short amount of time, we're able to deliver meaningful value uh, and this is something that's kind of unheard of uh, in, in the in the automation industry traditionally. That is incredible. The fact that you you have all the experiential knowledge and streamlined processes in unloading, revealing, and integrating new robots in such record speed. I really share the excitement and congratulations to your company and your team. They must work very hard to get to that point. Now, um, one thing that you did mention. On, on Formix website is automation is a necessity, not a luxury. Could you elaborate a bit more about this philosophy for us? Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, this is something we've learned from our customers. Uh, it's not our opinion, but uh, customers over and over again have been telling us about how critical it is to them to put in automation. Uh, they're competing with global manufacturers that have you know, significantly cheaper labor costs and have a higher capacity. And it's very difficult for manufacturers in the U.S. to compete uh, and their margins are shrinking by the date. And so a lot of forward thinking factories have seen this problem and have been uh, trying to find a way to solve it. Uh, on the other hand, the thing that we've heard over and over and over again from our customers is that uh, when we talk to them about automation, they say, yeah, 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 we've been planning to automate uh, we're, we're, we're right about to do it. We've been planning this project for the last five years or 10 years. Um, and so when you ask, kind of dig a little deeper, like what happened? You know, you've had 10 years to do this. Why don't you, well, why don't I see a robot uh, over here? Uh, you know, it's usually comes down to a combination of different things, but a lot of it is around risk and complexity and friction and cost where these, these factories who are operating on relatively low margins suddenly have to cough up hundreds of thousands of dollars on something that may or may not work. Uh, and then, you know, they're stuck managing and maintaining and servicing a piece of equipment that they may not be super familiar with. And so on the one hand, they know they need these robots in order to survive. But on the other hand, there's so much complexity and cost and risk that they just can't do it. Uh, and so what we see is that we've made it easy enough to kind of bridge that gap where we go into factories, they don't have to come up with a single dollar upfront. Uh, they just, point at the thing that they want automated. We show up with the robot and we just start charging by the hour uh, for that robot to do its task. 
Uh, and suddenly what we found is these factories are now able to compete uh, globally. So, um, you know, I think it, it's a necessity in today's world. It's becoming more and more of a necessity as the labor market tightens up and the cost of labor goes up and global manufacturing becomes more and more competitive and inflation means all of the costs that manufacturers have to deal with are going up. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's a necessity, uh, but, but sometimes it's treated like a luxury because uh, there's just not enough kind of in-house, uh, you know, they don't have capital, they don't have people around to maintain it. And there's just so many things that, that, that block uh, the adoption of automation. What is fascinating about the context of replacing a lot of the mechanical repetitive tasks with robots is that you have consistency and once you train and set up the system once you never have to worry about them not showing up to work or joining another company so that's all very fantastic in terms of talent skill gaps right with the scaling up of robotic usage and uh, i'm sure your company is expanding really fast what are the new skill types and personality you see that are in need as we scale up our industry today you think Mm. Yeah, I think um, humans are are fantastically good at at problem solving, at dexterity, at being creative, uh, and at you know, highly skilled tasks. And I think those are the things that what we've seen is when we put robots into a factory that takes uh, takes some of the very rote and repetitive work off of the table. Those people, we've never seen a factory that's fire, fired a single person because we put in a robot. Uh, all, all that happens is those people then start upskilling and start doing new and more interesting tasks. And so uh, some of them learn to become technicians and manage and maintain the uh, robots and other equipment. Some of them move to do more dexterous work where there's a lot more creativity and uh, the, you know, they need to um, be able to, to solve more complicated problems. Uh, and so uh, you know, I think humans are great problem solvers. And uh, what we've seen over and over again throughout human history is that whenever mechanization comes in, people take on uh, more advanced work. You know, the earliest, earliest example of this, you know, going back to history, is the agricultural revolution. Right? In the early days of humanity, most people in the world, 99% of the people in the world were concerned with subsistence farming. Right? They had to grow food so that they could stay alive. And that was all they did all day. Uh, and it wasn't until we had the agricultural revolution where a large number of, uh, or a small number of people took on a large portion of the production of food uh, that all of a sudden we freed up humanity to go and do more meaningful things. We developed systems of government and art and science and philosophy. And all of a sudden human civilization took this kind of giant leap forward. Uh, and that same thing happened again during the industrial revolution where we saw massive uh, improvement in the quality of living and the standards and people started to do more creative tasks. Uh, but today still, you know, a, a large number of people are spending their time making stuff for us to use, but still it's not enough. We don't live in a world of abundance today. Uh, COVID made it really clear that there's a shortage of basically everything, uh, right? And, it, and that's persisted even through, through today. And so if you look globally around the world, you know, so many people in the world don't have access to the basic things that they need. And so what we think is that with this kind of massive adoption of automation, we'll see uh, production uh, kind of drastically increase and we'll start to live in a world of abundance. I love that, especially given the recent geopolitical instability that's happening with Ukraine and Russia. There mm -hmm. is a global food crisis mm -hmm. and food manufacturing and packaging and delivery, all of that requires a lot of resources. So I, I think um, I, I'm also feeling optimistic about 
the role of robotics in scaling up total resources available for, for mankind. Now, um, Saman, I, Saman, I wanted to really circle back onto the fact that there are a lot of executives running their businesses onto this call, and they might all fit into one of the three buckets. Some of them might have never considered automation and listening to this, they may start thinking about it. So that's bucket two. And also there are a small subset of companies, like you said, around 10% that have considered using certain level of automation. Now for the companies I've never really kind of wet their feet and tried, what advice would you give them? How do they even begin to consider improving the efficiencies and future-proofing the businesses? Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, my advice for manufacturers who are considering automation uh, is either, um, you know, I, I, to really think about whether this is a core competence that they want to build in-house. And there are companies in the world who uh, have invested serious resources into becoming great at automation. Take Tesla, for example. Right? They have a large internal automation team. They have a lot of engineers uh, and they constantly are thinking about new ways to automate their plant and are bringing in uh, different vendors and suppliers to buy equipment and then repurposing that equipment over and over again to uh, produce uh, uh, cars. Uh, on the other side, you know, I think um, for a lot of manufacturers, this isn't something that they consider a core competence of theirs and they don't wanna do it on their own. Uh, and so for those types of manufacturers, I would recommend you know, meeting and talking to a few different vendors, maybe going to trade shows, learning a little bit about what's out there uh, and then really deciding on whether uh, that's the right place for them to invest um, serious capital. Because uh, I think there's there's one option, which is to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and try to buy the right piece of equipment. Um, and uh, also, of course, there's Formic as an alternative model, which allows you to do it without uh, having to put put a lot of risk and capital and expertise into it yourself. But uh, either way, uh, you know, we want to see robots adopted at much larger scale. Um, so uh, I think learning a little about what the what the options are and what the possibilities are is, is beneficial for a lot of uh for a lot of factories uh and then really the question comes down to is this the right place for you to put your capital um because for a lot of factories they only have let's say x dollars to spend a year uh, if you have five dollars five million dollars to spend this year uh there's different ways that you can allocate that capital and one way is to allocate it into machinery one way is to put it into advertising or customer experience or uh, more square footage or better air conditioning and all of those are different ways that somebody could spend their capital. Uh, and uh, the ultimate job of a CEO or CFO is to figure out uh, where that, where those dollars get spent. Um, and if, if it makes sense to put that all into robotics, then they should go ahead and do that. Uh, if there are other things that are better uses of, uh, of that capital, then they can use that capital for other things and form it and put up the capital for the robots. You mentioned that a company can hire Formic and, and bring in a team of robots by the hour without um, capital expenditure investment from the upfront. And that's a very tempting prospect. Do you mind telling our audience a little bit more about exactly how that works? Sure. Um, so what happens generally is we do a automation consultation for free upfront. So we'll walk the floor with... Um, our customers usually, um, you know, it's rare for there to be a, a, a factory that we haven't seen a similar one before. So, you know, a lot of food packaging companies have a similar set of processes, or uh, metal fabrication has a similar set of processes. So, 
very quickly, we can come back and suggest a few places where automation is a good fit for their facility. Uh, we might say, okay, you know, this CNC tending job and that uh, packaging job and that palletizing job over there are things that we suggest are good fits for automation. Uh, if the customer agrees that those are the right places for them, uh, then you know, all they have to do is kind of nod their heads and we'll go back, put together a full proposal. Uh, and they, they you know, will, will tell us what they think their estimated usage of that system would be. Uh, and uh, if, if we're aligned on what, you know, that's something that makes sense for them and makes sense for us, then Formic will go and, and do all the work necessary to get the system deployed and up and running. Uh, they don't need any engineering resources in-house. They don't need any CapEx approved in-house. Uh, and they can treat us kind of like a staffing agency. Uh, where, uh, you know, we just fill that empty head and we just charge by the hour for the usage of that empty head, except we're staffing with robots uh, instead of with people. And if some of the listeners are curious about where to start, um, should they visit your website? How do they begin yeah, the exploration? Uh, um, formic.co is our website, um, formic.co. So they're welcome to go on there. There's pictures, there's videos, there's examples. But also the easiest way is to just, you know, reach out to us. There's a little contact us button somewhere on there. And uh, we're happy to send uh, our team on site to just talk you through all the different options, talk you through the things that are um, good fits for automation. And even if you don't choose to go with Formic for automation, we're more than happy to suggest other vendors that can sell you equipment and things like that. So um, we really see ourselves as, as partners on this journey. Uh, our mission is not necessarily for there to be a Formic robot in every factory. We just want way more automation deployed across the board. And uh, we think we can facilitate that with our model, but uh, uh, regardless of how it happens, we think in, for, for American manufacturing to survive, uh, there just needs to be way, way, way more robots and we wanna help make that happen. Speaking of which, you brought up a really good point that when it comes to international competitiveness in our country's productivity across the world, um, having access to to efficiency and technologies, that's very important to us. How do you see automation is, is contributing to the American legacy of innovation? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of really interesting stats uh, around this, um, but there's a lot of uh, data to show that countries that adopt more automation actually end up having more jobs uh, available for their people and higher paying jobs. Uh, so right now there are uh, countries in Europe uh, and Asia that have drafts have adopted much much more automation than the U.S. has. Uh, I think last year China put in something like you know seven or eight million robots, um, and uh, the U.S. is I think you know a tenth of that, if if not less. Um, and so uh, naturally, what we're seeing is much higher productivity, much higher output, and much lower cost for that kind of end item that comes out of those, those manufacturing facilities. So if you imagine your uh, plastic in injection molder in the US, uh, you know, you're, you're competing with um, uh, a manufacturer that's somewhere else in the world, maybe China, that has uh, drastically more robots and a much lower cost of labor. Uh, and the only, the only advantage that you have is you don't have to pay for shipping costs uh, to get that product to the US. Um, and so, you know, we think that we can match uh, if not exceed the, the the kind of productivity of a Chinese factory here in the U.S. through innovation, uh, and that innovation is in the form of you know drastically better uh, automation. And uh, we see a future where American manu manufacturers are uh, 
globally competitive, not just for the U.S. market, but for export as well. There's no reason why American manufacturing can't produce really you know, high quality, low cost products. Uh, and uh, we're on the path uh, to get there. But um, uh, you know, one of the big missing ingredients is, is robots. You know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the typical factory uh, you know, only operates about 20 to 25% of the available hours of a year. Uh, so it's, it's no wonder that we can't, we can't compete with, with global production right now. And in the beginning of this conversation, we talked about the fact that your company uh, had has been involved with work with the Defense Department. Um, we saw that on your website um, that you you had projects with American America's Navy. While we understand that you can't get, give away any government secrets, can you share share with our listeners how robots in general support national security? Yeah, I think um, national security in the U.S. is uh, there's, there's two parts to it. One is the kind of actual defense, but another big part of it is, uh, supply chain security, uh, and every piece of, uh, equipment that goes either for civilian or, or defense, defensive uses, uh, is made somewhere. Uh, and I think you'd be surprised to find out if you kind of peel back enough layers of that onion, that a lot of that production is happening outside of the U S. Um, and so for, whether it's um, for me to get toothpaste, you know, tomorrow morning, or whether it's for uh, an automotive manufacturer to get parts for their car, or whether it's for uh, aerospace and defense manufacturer to get uh, components for their, um, you know, aircraft or whatever, uh, you need people uh, at every stage of that supply chain to have security. And um, that means uh, every nut and bolt, every screw and, you know, every you know, little metal part or plastic part, uh, all of that needs to get made uh, in a place where uh, the U.S. has uh, control and certainty over. Uh, and so by bringing automation to the U.S. And, and, and increasing the amount of automation in American factories, we're creating a much more defensible supply chain. And it's not just uh, defense uh, against war, but even, you know, for example, with COVID is, was a great example. When a lot of the shipping routes got disrupted, uh, we saw shortages across so many different categories uh, of equipment, everything from semiconductors to, uh, you know, toilet paper uh, had a shortage. And I think if we're, if we want to solve that problem and create resilience, the best way to do that is to put in a lot more automation and bring a lot more of that manufacturing to the U.S. I'd like to ask you, since you're such a productive individual, you have been on so many companies board, invested in multiple companies, uh, exited startups, and now starting another one. What are the three habits that help you be the leader you are today? Um, that's a great question and a difficult one. Um, I think that uh, one thing that I really, really strive to do is to be in a humble kind of posture of learning. Uh, I think uh, I'm a firm believer that, that uh, I have, a, no matter who is around me, you know, there are things that I can learn from them. Uh, and I think that's really helped me in my work and in Formic as a business as well. We're constantly learning from our customers, from our competitors, from other things that are happening in the market. And that's something that um, is, a, is a really high value uh, for us. Um, another another uh, quality that I, I think is really important for, for any company, but especially for a company like ours that's trying to do things in a, in a new and, and unusual way is... Um, uh, almost a naive sense of optimism. Uh, you know, that's something that we really try constantly to have. 
is uh, when 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 there are things that that come up, our our default mode is to say, "Huh, I wonder how that works," rather than to have the default mode of, "Oh, there's no way that's ever going to work." Uh, you know, and I think it's really common in in the manufacturing industry, from what I've seen, to have a default skepticism. Uh, you know, when new things come up. Uh, uh, the default a lot of the time is to say, well, you know, that won't work because this or so-and-so sucks or whatever. And I think uh, we've heard that so many times and we're really actively trying to counterbalance that by, by being, you know, optimistic, you know, and, and our first question always is, you know, how can we make that work? Uh, and that's served us in, a, in a, from a technology perspective and from a, from a uh, human perspective as well. A, a third thing that, that really matters to us as a company is resilience. Uh, one of our kind of company values is, is um, uh, be like rubber. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that there's just, there's, there's so much value to uh, being able to recover from challenges and difficulty. And uh, whether that's an individual, when we hire somebody, that's the first thing we look for is what kinds of challenges have they been through and how have they bounced back from that? And as a company as well, that's something that we constantly strive to do is uh, we know that we're not going to get everything perfect and, and right the first time around. Uh, but uh, what matters is how quickly we can we can adjust and course correct because uh, as a startup you know the the most valuable thing that we have is not the hundred years of fit history or whatever that you know other companies might have the most valuable thing that we have is our ability to iterate really really quickly uh, and so we need to be resilient and then iterate and then figure out the next you know the next step forward fantastic and i think there's a theme to the three habits or or practices that you talk about it is the ability to detach your ego from the outcome but work as best to your ability with mm -hmm. your team mm -hmm. what is very fascinating about the digitalization and robotization of a plant is that you capture so much more data behaviorally through the machinery connecting to all the systems and data sources. Hmm. How do you think this is actually adding additional efficiency and, and deepen the owner's understanding about their companies, how it's run and, and identifying potentially uh, aspects of optimization? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think it's very pertinent today because uh, you know, my, my career before starting Formic was, was really looking at AI and machine learning as uh, a big area of focus for me. And I, I've seen a lot of things that are being done uh, applying those tools to uh, the industrial world. So maybe I'll, I'll answer that question in, in, in the sense that I think there are three, three parts that are getting much better. One is you mentioned kind of data collection. So uh, data collection is getting so much better not just because of kind of quote unquote digitization or robotics, but also just our, our level of sensing, you know, capabilities has gone up drastically. In the last 10 years, smart, the smartphone revolution has created a whole suite of new low cost sensors, cameras, vibration, you know, uh, things like that. But also uh, our perception is much better. And so like machine vision is now able to look at a scene and understand what people and what things and what objects are in that scene and how they're interacting with each other. So our ability for computers to understand the physical world has, has drastically shot up in the last few years. The second piece is uh, our ability to make decisions uh, based on that information has also gone up drastically. So you can imagine if, if me as the CEO of a company, if somebody showed me a data stream with hundreds of thousands of you know, vibration data points of, you know, a robot that's in my, in my, in my fleet, 
would I be able to make better decisions? The answer is probably no. Like, I don't know what to do with hundreds of thousands of data points. But now that we have better machine intelligence, we're able to process not just that one sensor, but thousands and thousands of sensors across thousands and thousands of, of robots, plus all of the historical data from the last you know, 10 years of, of data collection and compare it and look for anomalies and look for things that stand out. Uh, and so our ability to interpret that data and make better decisions on that data has gone up drastically as well uh, through uh, machine learning. And so that allows us to make better decisions at every point of the supply chain from what materials do we procure and when do we procure them to when do we service equipment and how do we, you know, what do we buy and what do we rent? And all, there's all these things that we can now make better decisions around because we have way more data and we also have a better ability to make decisions off that data. And then the third piece is our ability to act on those decisions has gone up a lot as well. You can imagine, uh, you know, the CEO of a company looking at a dashboard with all kinds of insights. Well, we have that all the time. Uh, but then what do you do with those insights, right? I, I've seen many, many companies overwhelmed by data, even if there are insights that they've kind of analyzed for that data and they say, well, oh, our recommendation is that you, you know, buy this raw material earlier and you, you know, hire this many people three months from now. But our ability to act on that data has also been quite limited by the pace at which we can kind of update our, our decision making. And so uh, AI and machine learning and, and robotics have all, are all different tools by which we can take that better decision making capability and use it to execute better as well in the real world. And so the, there are things like automated procurement systems. There are things like automated tool path generation for robots and, and uh you know, that execution piece uh, of taking those decisions and turning them into real action has also gotten significantly better in the last few years. And what's amazing is that, you know, each of those three things by itself is valuable, but when you string those three things together, uh, it becomes even more valuable because you can update those decisions much more quickly as well. So in a traditional world, you know, how often would I be as a CEO making decisions about procurement in my business? Maybe once a month, maybe once a quarter. Um, and, uh, you know, that's probably the maximum of my bandwidth to be able to make decisions on procurement. Uh, but the reality is that information is, there's new information every day and that information is changing constantly. Uh, and so can I make better decisions, uh, uh, you know, if I have more granularity and I can kind of look at that data more frequently? Probably I could, I just personally don't have the bandwidth to do it. And so now that we have, you know, those three pieces that are stringed together, better data collection, better decision-making, better execution, we're now able to live in a world where a business can make new decisions every you know, 10 times a second, right? We can look at all the data, all the things that are happening, make a new decision and then execute on that decision. Uh, and what you get from that is just you know, a compounding effect of drastically better overall performance and throughput. And so uh, I think we're living in a time that uh, is really going to be transformative in every industry, not just manufacturing, but also agriculture and also healthcare and biology and, and uh, you know, each of these fields is going to be transformed by our ability to get way more data, make better decisions, and then execute on that data, and then do that, you know, thousands of times per second. Um, so I think we're we're really at a at a turning point in human civilization. Formic is actually being um, a disrupting force for good. In the first layer of the strategy is really about democratizing automation by by the hour without upfront investment, breaking down that silo and an obstacle. But the second part is you basically enable a lot of companies that might be small and can never actually have the uh, sort of runway into accessing the three facets of data-driven, machine-driven 
efficiency that we, we're just talking about. And then there's actually a third layer in terms of what we haven't gotten to talk about today. I am part of um, a, a community called the American Manufacturing Communities Collaborative. It's a very long mouthful. Um, but NIST is part of this, the National Institution Standard and Technologies, local MEPs, a lot of academics and government agencies uh, from the Department of Defense, um, Cornell, you name it, all the really kind of interested, passionate people in there. And we are trying to develop um, a, a measurement framework around manufacturing impact on communities. Because just uh, talking about the abstract level of bringing in jobs and, and economic multipliers, they are great, but helping um, Rust Belt's communities that might actually be under siege from uh, just the lack of opportunities in certain areas or, or, or the, the consequences of past uh, offshoring. I, I do feel like from talking to a lot of the communities, things are actually turning up. There are a lot of job opportunities and yeah. I really want to thank you for your contribution in our sector as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thomas Industry Podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview with Simone Farid, please subscribe, share with a colleague or leave a review.